them uh, last week, verses 16 and 17, and want to add verse 18 to what we're looking at this week. So follow along, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says in verse 15 that he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Uh, He says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness And unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We need help. So I'm going to pray for the Spirit. To help us, let's pray. Father, every word that you speak is true because you are true. Every word is good because you are good. Every word is righteous because you are righteous. Every word is holy because you are holy. And we come to some of what is especially challenging, but no less true in what you say, what you tell us in your word. So we need your spirit. We ask you that you would come and open our hearts and open our minds and help us to see in these verses your goodness, seeing just how, how good you really are. Uh, Lord, uh, open our eyes and our hearts and take this, your truth, and press this by your spirit into the depths of our souls, into the depths of our being, and by your spirit and your word, work and continue to work to renew and change and refresh and recreate us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're looking at these uh, transitional verses, verses 16 and 17. They lead us into verses 18 and following and on on, uh, through the rest of the letter. And really what we've been doing over these last couple of weeks um, as we've looked at this portion of this letter, we've been looking at specific ideas and specific words, and what we've been doing, in a sense, is is sort of creating a vocabulary, right? If if, uh, you're going to speak a language, you have to learn the vocabulary of that language. You have to know what words mean, what the content of those words is. You have to know how they relate to one another. That's what you have to do. Uh, to speak a language. If I were to say to you, Buona nimwema wakatiwote, wakatiwote, buona nimwema, most of you wouldn't have any idea what I just said. I can also tell you that that's about all the Swahili I know. But there are three words of what the phrase says. It's a way, interestingly enough, that Tanzanian and Kenyan Christians will greet each other. God is good all the time. And the response is, all the time, God is good. Buana nimwema wakatiwote. Wakatiwote buana nimwema. I expect you to use that when you come here next Sunday. You've got to know the meaning of words in order to have a conversation in that language. Well, 
it just kind of struck me this last week that we're creating a kind of gospel vocabulary. We're, we're trying to understand words that are critical words. If we're going to have a meaningful conversation with Paul's letter to the Romans, and in fact, if we're going to have a meaningful conversation with the whole of the Bible, uh, we're looking at key building block kinds of words. And just really quickly, for the benefit of those, I hope really quickly, for the benefit of those of you who maybe haven't, maybe haven't been here for the last few weeks, because there are some folks who are here for the first time, which those of you who are not here for the first time will find. You'll find them after the service, and you'll greet them, won't you? You will do that. Good. I'm glad. Here are some of the words that we've been learning about and trying to understand. Gospel. What is gospel? What is the gospel? Gospel means good news or good announcement. It means you know, it's what a herald would do when a herald would go into to a village and, and now announce something, proclaim something that came from the king. It'd be a good announcement, good news. What is the good news? Well, the good news is Jesus, in a word. The good news is Jesus. It's what Paul talks about in verses 2 and 3. The good news is that the promised warrior, deliverer, redeemer, king, the one who was promised in the Old Testament, has in fact come. That's the good announcement. That's the good news. And he comes as an heir of David. He comes from David according to the flesh. That's his human nature. That's the, the human side of him. But having lived and then having died, unlike anybody else having lived and died, he was raised. He was raised from death to life. And his resurrection is a public declaration, a public validation that he is not only the descendant of David, the promised king, Messiah, deliverer who would come, but he is, in fact, the son of God clothed in power. He is this, he is this unique person in all of human history, fully man and fully God. Son of David and the Son of God. That's historic Christian orthodoxy. That's at the core of every ecumenical creed ever drafted, from the Apostles' Creed to the Nicene Creed to more contemporary creeds like the Belgic Confession that we, we, we read from this morning. That's historic Christian orthodoxy, okay? And that's the good news, that the one who was promised has come he has been raised. That is the validating, vindicating event. But it's not the end because now he is Jesus Christ the Lord, Paul says at the end of verse 4. He is Jesus Christ the Lord, Jesus Christ our Lord. What happened between resurrection and lordship? He ascended. It's not talked about. It's not mentioned specifically, but it's presupposed. He is now the king of glory, ruling and reigning over everything. He is the gospel. That's what good news is. It's the announcement of the coming of the king. And then we talked about faith. What is faith? And we said there are two things. There is an objective content to the Christian faith. The Bible uses the word faith to describe the faith, the stuff that Christians believe, the stuff without which, honestly and truly, you can't call yourself a Christian. I mean, it's just the way it is. The core of orthodoxy, the stuff about the triune God, the things about Jesus who was incarnate, who lived, who died, who was raised, who ascended, the Jesus who is going to appear again, 
who's going to come again. That's the objective content of the faith. There are certain things that are true. And the Bible uses the word faith in that way. But what is the real focus here in Romans is this other sense in which the word faith is used, and that is the subjective and personal exercise of trust. That's what faith is. That's the meaning of the word. The root of the word means to trust. And, you know, we went through all of these illustrations two or three weeks ago to try to describe exactly what it is the New Testament faith is. And the bottom line is that when you believe as a Christian, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, believes in the New Testament sense, you're not just believing some proposition with your head. You're not just assenting to the fact that it's there. You're not even, in fact, acknowledging that it's true. Those are two different kinds of belief. But New Testament belief and faith is this third thing. You are entrusting yourself to this. Every once in a while in this church, we use the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your, think about this, take this home, chew on this through the week. What is your only hope in life and in death? What is your only hope? And the answer, amen. Amen. My Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the answer that came from over here. What is your only hope? That I belong not to myself but that I belong body and soul in the totality of who I am to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own precious blood has delivered me from all the power of the devil. I have entrusted myself fully to Jesus. That's New Testament faith. And then we talked after that, we talked about these other two words, salvation, what is salvation, and here's, here's what it is, and this is where, this is where the good news begin, begins to become uh, a bit unnerving, okay? What is salvation? Well, if you read the Old Testament, if your mind is molded and shaped and formed by the Old Testament in the way Paul's mind was shaped by the Old Testament, with passages like Isaiah 46, 13 ringing in his ears, I am bringing my righteousness near, my salvation will not delay. Or Isaiah 51 verse 5, my righteousness draws near, my salvation will not delay. If you listen to what the Old Testament says about the nature of salvation, it sounds something like this. When the king comes, the king brings with him salvation. And the salvation that he brings is characterized by righteousness. He comes as a righteous, delivering, powerful king, a redeeming king, a warrior who fulfills everything that is promised in that very cryptic first promise in Genesis 3.15, where God speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, and the woman, meaning Eve, between your seed and her seed. But he will crush you on the head, you will bruise him on the heel. That's the first promise of the gospel, the proto-gospel, if you will. And what does it promise? It promises somebody who is going to come, he's going to crush Satan, he's going to overturn his kingdom, he's going to eradicate all evil, all unrighteousness, every evidence of unkindness, injustice, oppression, 
cruelty, selfishness, all of those things. This coming, conquering warrior, redeemer, king, he's going to eradicate all of it. That's what molds and shapes Paul's thinking as he thinks about salvation. A righteous king who brings in a reign of righteousness. Now, as I said last week, if you stop and if you're careful, you realize that the announcement of the arrival of the king of righteousness who comes to reign in righteousness, who eradicates all unrighteousness, who eliminates all evil and all oppression, who comes in the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, is trouble for whom? It's trouble for me. When I hear the word all, I've got to believe that all is in view. And I celebrate because on the one hand, it is good news to know that he, when he comes, will eliminate all injustice, all oppression, all harm, all cruelty, all selfishness, all forms of tyranny and despotism, all of it, including death. All of it will be banished when he comes. It's wonderful to know that when he comes bearing salvation, it will mean deliverance for his people. But look, I get impaled on the proverbial horns of a dilemma here, don't I? Because if he is going to come ushering in a rule and reign of righteousness, bringing with him salvation, and he's going to eradicate all unrighteousness, I've got to understand that I've got a problem. Because if I'm honest with myself, I know that there is no conceivable way, no possible way, that I can stand in the presence of the king of righteousness and plead innocence. I can't. I can make myself feel better by looking at the Hitlers and the Amins and the Pol Pots of this world I can make myself feel better by looking at the Barney Madoffs of this world. But after I've looked at the Barney Madoffs of this world and the Pol Pots and all of the rest, there's still me. And what happens when the king of righteousness shows up on my doorstep and says, Hi, I'm the king of righteousness here to deal with your unrighteousness. I am here to exterminate, eradicate, eliminate all unrighteousness. You see, I mean, and that, frankly, is Paul's first point in this letter to the Romans. That's the burden of the first major section of this letter. The the section that begins with these words that ought to cause us to tremble For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And for the next chapter and a half, two chapters, the Apostle Paul wants to make this point. We'll look at it in greater detail, but he wants to make this point. He wants to make this point that unrighteousness, that is sin, It's a four-letter word that's only three letters. 
Unrighteousness, that is sin, is a universal problem. It's a problem for the Jew, and it's a problem for the Gentile. And it's against that backdrop, it's against the backdrop of the problem of unrighteousness that the wonder of the gospel is really seen. That's where you see the wonder of the gospel. Paul says, in the gospel, a righteousness, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Now, here's the question. How does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? How does the gospel make the righteousness of God known? How do we see it? How is it shown to us? How is it revealed to us, this righteousness of God? Well, here's the first thing. Let's be clear about what we mean by righteousness. It's another word that we're trying to add to our gospel vocabulary. Okay? Gospel, faith, salvation, righteousness. It's another word for that vocabulary. The Old Testament uses this word with respect to physical things, uses the same word, and when it uses this word with respect to physical things, it's translated straight. It's what the Old Testament word means. It means straight as opposed to crooked or bent or twisted. But it takes on a moral quality when it is used of God in his relationship to his moral creatures, meaning people, as well as angels. But we're not angels. We're human beings, so we'll be concerned about how this applies to us. We aren't human beings. We aren't angels. We're never going to be angels. We are human beings. We will forever be human beings. If you want to ask me about that, I'll talk to you following the service. God in his relationship to human beings. What does righteousness mean? Well, what does this word mean? Well, it means very simply that God is always right in his dealings with his creatures. He is always right in his dealing with his creatures. He is always righteous in his laws, meaning his laws are right. He is always righteous in his governance meaning the way he rules his universe is always right. It is always consistent with things as they ought to be. Huge mystery to us, to be sure. But he is always right in his deeds. Listen to some Psalms. Psalm 96, 13. He shall judge the world in righteousness. When he enters into judgment with the world, it will be a righteous judgment. It will be right. Psalm 48, 10. Your right hand, which is the symbol in the Old Testament of power and honor. Both things. It's a symbol of power and honor. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Full of rightness. Now, God doesn't have a hand. You understand that? He's not, he does not have a body like men, the children's catechism says. He is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging, and all of those other things. But this is one of those things that describes the fact that in the powerful hand of God, that is in the being of God, there is a plentitude of righteousness, a righteousness that overflows, that knows no limits, that cannot be bound. He is infinitely righteous. That's what that means, Psalm 48. Psalm 119, all your commandments are righteousness. So whether giving the law or executing judgment or ruling over his universe, God does what is right. 
always. And he does what is right because of who he is essentially at the core of his being. And what he is essentially at the core of his being is holy. And holiness means simply in the Old Testament, pure, completely and entirely free of any defect or any moral weakness or failing. He is clean, absolutely morally perfect. That's why Isaiah fell on his face when he entered into the presence of God, Isaiah 6. Why did Isaiah collapse in a puddle on the ground? You know, when I read Isaiah 6, you can read it, and I see this image of Isaiah in the presence of God. I think of the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz. You remember when she was in the castle and 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 somebody threw a bucket of water on her? I guess Dorothy did to put out the... You know, to put out the flame that had caught the scarecrow. She missed the scarecrow, and she hit the Wicked Witch of the West, and the Wicked Witch of the West just melts in a puddle on the ground. She's just a puddle. I'm melting. Remember? Right? That's what happened to Isaiah when he walked into the presence of God. Holy, pure, without moral defect. Brilliant, white-hot holiness. And Isaiah collapses in a puddle and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The thing that Isaiah was aware of was his moral imperfection, his unholiness. I think I've said this to us before. I mean, it's just good to be reminded. We'd love to see Jesus show up, wouldn't we? I mean, wouldn't, you know... I think anybody who's a real Christian who's got a heart beating in his spiritual or her spiritual chest at all would love it if Jesus were to show up. I mean, that'd be such a wonderful thing. But let me tell you, if Jesus walked through those doors right now, everybody would be ducking. Everybody would be heading for cover because of the white-hot brilliance of his resurrected glory and holiness. It's why John fell on his face in the Revelation. Because the glorified Christ exhibits the same holiness as his father, the eternal God. And so because he is perfectly pure and perfectly holy, without defect, everything that he does, the outward expressions, the outward manifestations of his existence, the stuff that bleeds out of him, must be righteous. It always will be. It can never be anything but righteous. Everything he is, everything he does is righteous. He's different from us. You have to remember this. Ed Welch makes a great point of this in this book that I've suggested that you read, Running Scared. You must remember that God is not a big human being. You must remember that he's different. Some of you parents have used the line that I've used with my kids. You tell your child to do something, the child says, but you don't do that. You're telling your child to do something that is right. And a child, if the child is smart, the child won't vocalize what the child is thinking. But the child, in his mind or in her mind or heart, says, you don't do that. And the response of the parent is, what? Don't do as I do, do as I say. There is not that kind of disparity in God. You can't look at God and say he's inconsistent. He says one thing, but he does another. We're that way, but he is not. Perfectly holy and righteous in all of his dealings. 
And so the gospel, Paul is saying, shows us this righteousness of God. How does this announcement, this proclamation of the arrival of the long-awaited king of righteousness, how does he show us his righteousness in this gospel? Well, the, the answer in the first place, and this is verse 18, the answer in the first place, he shows us his righteousness in his wrath. Let me read the verse for you again. He shows us his righteousness in his wrath. And wrath is another word that you've got to work into your vocabulary, your gospel vocabulary. It's got to be a part of the vocabulary that you build as a Christian if you're going to be in conversation with the scriptures. Okay? You've got to have this word. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The wrath of God reveals the righteousness of God because the wrath of God is directed specifically against unrighteousness. The wrath of God, as we'll see in just a second, is God's response to unrighteousness. And again, I want to emphasize, you've got to say all when the Bible says all. And this wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness. Why is that? Because the king has come. The king has come. He is a righteous king. He's come to eradicate all unrighteousness. He's come to put all things right, which sounds like good news again until the king of righteousness shows up on my doorstep to deal with my unrighteousness, and I find that he is not there to have a conversation with me. The wrath of God is being revealed from the princely, kingly throne of heaven against all unrighteousness. He's not here to debate. He is here to deal with unrighteousness. Whatever form it takes, in whatever fashion you find it. Again, You can't think of wrath in the way that you typically think of it. You have to remember God is not a big human being. We know what wrath looks like, okay? When we hear the word wrath, we tend to think of something like an outburst of anger. And we say things like, my dad lost it. My mom lost her cool, and got hot. Right? Eyes bulging out, veins in the neck, raised voice, face flushed, a fit of passion, right? An outburst, something that's unexpected, something that's uncontrolled, something that's capricious, okay? You can't think of wrath in that way as you think about wrath as it is found in God. Here's the way John Murray puts it in his commentary on Romans. He says, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his character. It is the, there's that word holy, right? 
It is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his character. Holy revulsion. Now look, you know, you know what it is like to be revolted by something, right? You know what it is to experience revulsion. You encounter something, and in some way, it is disgusting to you. And you know that it is wrong. You know that it is bad. You know that it is evil. You know that it isn't the way things are supposed to be. It isn't right. It isn't righteous. And you respond to it. You react against it. Now, here's the thing. You are an image bearer of God. You are created by the infinite personal God who is really there. And there are ways in which you are like God. And this is one of those ways. You're created a moral being. You're created to live in a moral universe where right things happen. And when we encounter wrong things, it flips a switch. It triggers something in us. And we react and we respond. It happens to you. It happens to me. We should not be surprised that it happens with God. It happens with us inconsistently. Our so-called righteous indignation is normally heavily laced with self-righteousness and self-justification. But still, What goes on in us when that switch gets flipped gives us an idea of what it is that goes on in God perfectly. Perfectly. Let me give you a couple of examples. Last, no, two Christmases ago, Christmas of 2007, my daughters gave me a gift of a pair of rainbow flip-flops, rainbow sandals. Okay, I, you know, I live near the beach now, live in Florida, never had them. I guess they're cool. My daughters are cool, or at least they think they're cool. They want their dad to be cool. So they buy me a pair of rainbow sandals, flip-flops, simple flip-flops. But they're very comfortable, okay? About a year later, I'm in Philadelphia at a conference, I leave my flip-flops along with a very nice pair of running shoes in the closet. I leave Philadelphia. I head home. I get home. I unpack my suitcase. I realize, dummy, I've left my flip-flops and my running shoes in my hotel room in Philadelphia. I call the hotel. I talk to housekeeping. I say, hey, they got to still be there because I haven't been gone that long. Would you check and see if my flip-flops and my running shoes are in my room. It's this room number. They call me back like within half an hour. No, sir. I'm sorry. They're gone. I say thank you very much. I'm sure they are gone. I'm sure at this moment they're on somebody else's feet. So shortly after the first of the year, 2009, I buy myself a new pair of rainbow flip-flops. And I take them down to the beach. I walk across A1A. I walk 
down the, you know, the, the, the little wood thing that leads me down to the beach. And, and I get to the end of the little wood thing, and I park my rainbow flip-flops under the bench. I go down to the beach with Barb. We're down there for a couple of hours. I come back. And they're gone. I've had these things for two weeks. Brand spanking new. And they're gone. Barb posts a little note. Lost. I thought that was kind of her. A pair of man's rainbow flip-flops. Please bring them back either here or to the gatehouse. They never appear again. There had been four college kids on the beach just down from us. The only other people on the beach, they left before we did. I'm thinking what I'm thinking. So I think, okay, God doesn't want me to have rainbow flip-flops. I'm getting the message. I bought a third pair. (laughs) Good idea. Stencil your name on them or something. Or put them on a chain around my neck. Yesterday, 8 o'clock in the morning, Barb and I observe our weekly ritual. We take coffee. We go down to the beach. I wore my rainbow flip-flops. I walk down the little wood thing. I park my little flip-flops under the bench. We are gone for one hour and 15 minutes. When I come back, gone. Again. Now, there are two things to say about this. And I, I suspect you're thinking both of them. Number one, Malone, you are really stupid. Why don't you get it? I mean, Barb's old $2 old Navy flip-flops are still there under the bench. But here's the other thing. You're probably thinking, that isn't right. That's wrong. Barb posts the sign again, lost, pair of missing. And again, I think, that's kind of her. They weren't lost, they were stolen. Someone took something that did not belong to him or her for the second time. That's where stupidity enters in. You know, should have known better, right? But still, there is something, there is a switch that gets flipped when someone steals, when someone is lawless, when someone does something that is unrighteous, taking something that doesn't belong to him or her. And I have to tell you, yesterday, it made me angry. And it made me want justice. Doesn't it? You're a human being. You are not a rock. You are not a tree. And when you encounter injustice, there is something inside you that cries out and says, somebody do something about this. And when the Bible says that the wrath of God, the holy revulsion of the being of God against everything that is a contradiction of his character, I want to tell you that is good news. It is good news, as we've been saying for months, ever since we started looking at the the minor prophets, it is good news to know that somebody is at home in his universe who cares about what is right and what is wrong and who is going to deal with it and do something about it. You should be thankful for the goodness of God, for the righteousness of God, for the holiness of God. 
you should be thankful and encouraged that somebody is at home in his universe who's going to deal with unrighteousness, who is going to enter into judgment with the unjust. Here's another example. This is fascinating. We're almost, we're almost done. Okay, we're almost done. W.H. Auden, I just learned this this last week. It's, you know, I listen to other preachers because I need to be preached to. I, I need to hear the gospel myself. I need to hear the word of God. I listen to other preachers. And this last week in a sermon that I was listening to, I learned this, that W.H. Auden, the English poet, was living in New York City in the 1930s. And in December 1939, he went to a film in the neighborhood where he lived. And he lived in a German community surrounded by Germans, knew these people, lived with them, some section in Manhattan. And before the film was a newsreel describing, portraying the invasion of Poland by Hitler's German troops, by Nazi German troops. And this newsreel cast this invasion in such a way as to justify the invasion of Poland by Germany, and as this newsreel is, is unfolding, people in the audience, Germans in the audience, stood up, shaking their fists, saying, kill them, kill the Poles. Now, Auden's an Englishman, and he's, he is aghast at this. He is horrified at this. He feels a sense of anger and a sense of rage at the rage that he sees being exhibited by these Germans as this newsreel thing is describing the invasion of Poland. Auden is an atheist at this time. But Auden, in his biography, in biographies of Auden, will tell you that after this event, Auden came back to the church and stayed in the church for the rest of his life. Because he understood that if there is no God at home in the universe, he has no basis, no ultimate ground for objecting to the objections, to the acts, to the deeds, to the injustices of Germans who invade Poland. If there is no Righteousness, capital R. If there is no ultimate moral standard, if there is no God at home in his universe who will enter into justice or into judgment with all injustice, then Charlie Chaplin, you remember me mentioning Charlie Chaplin who looked out at the heavens, he learned that there was no life on Mars, and he said, I feel lonely. He should not only feel lonely, he should feel desperately afraid. Desperately afraid if there is no one at home in the universe. But the scriptures are telling us that there is someone at home. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just in all of his dealings. Now, again, really quickly, for you and me, for people who have a connection to the Christian faith, who have a connection to the cross, who have a connection to these things, where does, where does this righteousness of God shine the most brilliantly? 
the most wonderfully and the most beautifully. Here is God, the righteous judge, entering into judgment with all injustice and all unrighteousness. Where does the announcement of the coming king of righteousness shine forth the most beautifully, the most wonderfully, the most amazingly, the most startlingly? It is when the the king lays down his crown and is impaled on a cross and takes all of my injustice, all of my unkindness, all of my unrighteousness, takes all of my unrighteousness, my injustice, my unkindness, my lying, my deceit, my outbursts of anger, all of the evil of my life, the totality of it, he takes it away from me and he takes it to himself. And what is it that happens at the cross? Where is the wrath of God most visibly seen? Where is it most clearly revealed? It is when the Father visits the full measure of his wrath in judgment upon his unrighteous son. The son who has become unrighteous by bearing the sins of his people so that his people might be declared fully righteous and clean. You know, I read this this morning. I put this bulletin together. Okay, I put this bulletin together this last week. I almost could not finish what we affirmed. We believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus Christ and that in it our righteousness before God is contained. And therefore we cling to this foundation which is firm forever, giving all glory to God, humbling ourselves and recognizing ourselves as we are, unrighteous, fundamentally, thoroughly, not claiming a thing for ourselves or our merits and leaning and resting solely on the obedience of Christ crucified, which is ours when we believe in him, when we entrust ourselves to him. It is enough to cover all our sins. And then this word, freeing the conscience from the fear, dread, and terror of God's approach. Do you see the rationale of the cross Do you see where the righteousness that is of God is most fully revealed? It is when he displays his righteous indignation and wrath upon his son as his son is a sin-bearing substitute for me. All of my sin and unrighteousness is transferred to him. And the father pours out his wrath upon the Son so that I have nothing to fear ever again. I have to ask again, I have to encourage you again to think seriously for just a moment about the cross 
And for you who are believers, let me encourage you to cling to this cross wherein the righteousness of God has been made manifest so clearly. May your hearts be at rest. May your consciences be at peace. You have nothing to fear. And if there's anybody in this room who has not yet come to this cross and come under this cross, let me plead with you that you do it. Just come to this cross and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I understand that sin has been dealt with at the cross. And I understand that sin is going to be dealt with one place or another. It's either going to be dealt with at the cross or it's going to be dealt with by you on my doorstep. One place or the other. And so flee your doorstep. Flee the house of your own works, your own obediences and merits and all of these other things and come to the cross and cling, cling to the cross wherein the wrath of God, as we sang, the wrath of God has been fully satisfied because on him every sin was laid. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as the son of your father, the eternal son of your father, you are the crown prince of righteousness. You are the king of righteousness. I thank you that you will never be anything but righteous. And father in heaven, I thank you that together with the son and the Holy Spirit, you inhabit this universe. And you've come to put all things right. But I thank you, Father, that the first thing you've come to put right is our relationship with you. And that you've done that through the cross. You've done that in Jesus. The one who dies bearing your wrath that we might be set free and be, in fact, clothed with his righteousness. I pray. For each person in this room, I pray, O oh God, that you would drill these things into our hearts, into our souls. I pray that you would set us more and more free because of the finished work of Jesus. And I do pray for anyone in this room, O oh God, that you would trouble that person. If he or she has not come to you, draw them, open their eyes, open their hearts, deal with them in grace and mercy as you have with me and as you have with so many countless thousands. Hear these prayers, Lord Jesus, that you might be praised. In your name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing hymn number 30. Our God, our help in ages past.